Once again, customers, next stop is Rockdale, named after your friend, my friend, the people's friend, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, followed by Cogra. Mind the rain out there. It's getting a little wet. Welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. of the Proper Mental Podcast. My guest this week is Oliver Moll, who is a writer, an author, and a train guard. And in 2015, Oliver started to suffer with a migraine that would last for 10 months. He lived with constant, excruciating pain, which would be made worse by looking at any sorts of screens, or trying to read, or trying to write. And he saw all manners of doctors, physios, therapists, and no one was able to help. And he slowly became a writer who couldn't write, and a book lover who couldn't read, and a person who could no longer interact with the modern world. And he experienced a breakdown, and he slid into a spiral of depression that took him to the brink of suicide. And one night, while high on painkillers, Oliver googled, full-time job, no experience, Sydney. And he applied for the first job that came up, which was that of a train guard. And he spent the next two years working on the trains, reconnecting with life, reconnecting with himself, watching the people around him going round and round on the trains, and trying to work out how he could become part of the world again. He slowly started to write again, a minute here, two minutes there in between stops, and this process would help him to find his way out of both the physical and mental pain. And while working on the trains, he used to make amusing announcements and call himself the train lord, and that's one of the ways that he passed his time, by making the passengers laugh. You've just heard a little snippet of him at the start that I recorded off his Instagram. There's going to be a couple more through the episode. But he wrote all about this stuff, in his recent memoir, it's called Train Lord, and it's such a cool book. It was actually my dad bought it for me, and he'd read an interview with Oliver in the paper, and he was so touched by the story that he bought the book for me, thought it would be the sort of thing that I would like. He was right, but he didn't tell me that he'd bought me this book, right? So one day this Amazon parcel arrived, and in it was a book, it was addressed to me, so it must have been mine, it was this book, Train Lord by Oliver Moll. And I thought, that's weird, who sent me this? And I was actually reading another book at the time that I was really enjoying. But I had this new book and I thought, well, I'll just read a couple of pages just to see what it's all about. And ended up just carrying on. And three days later, I'd finished it. It's a really wonderful book. And uh, yeah, I highly recommend that you check it out. I found it really moving. I found it very funny. There's just everything in there. It's brilliant. It was a real treat to chat to Oliver all about it. We talk about the loss of identity. We talk about chronic pain. We talk about people pleasing. We talk about the importance of stories and the importance of learning to slow down and to breathe. I think chronic pain is a, an often neglected conversation. I think people who have never experienced it find it very hard to relate to that story. But it's fascinating to me the way that the brain and the body work together, how they affect each other and the sort of effect on mental health that a 10-month migraine can have. But the book is out now. It's available everywhere. If you want to connect with Oliver on Twitter, it's at Oliver underscore Moll or on Instagram at train underscore Lord. And if you want to connect with me at Proper Mental Podcast in all the usual places, send me an email via the website. All the links and everything you need is all in the episode notes. And of course, it's obligatory. I have to ask you whether you do it or not. 
But if you could take two minutes to leave me a five-star review on iTunes or on Spotify, it would be very much appreciated. And this is episode 106 of The Proper Mental Podcast with the train lord, Oliver Moll. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy. Attention customers, next stop is Newtown. And for those of you from the town, interestingly, Newtown is named after Isaac Newtown. So here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast, and my guest this week is Oliver Moll. How are you, mate? Yeah, really, really well. Really well. Thank you. Oh, mate, that's good to hear. That's good to hear. Where are you, mate, um, at the moment? Because your uh, Instagram story, there's been some incredible sights and adventures on that recently. Man. What, what are you up to? Um, I'm currently living in Tbilisi, Georgia, actually. So... Yeah, just um, that beautiful country in the Caucasus, um, yeah, between Armenia and Russia and Azerbaijan. Mm. Wow. That, that's like, is that, is that quite a heavy place to be living at the moment? It's, uh, it's not the most obvious choice, I think. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. Um, you know, I, I came here basically to write Train Lord in 2019. Um, I ended up here by total accident. I couldn't have even told you where Georgia was on a map previous to that but um yeah long story short i uh yeah moved to spain and then uh couldn't stay in the eu so i went to albania and then I ended up in georgia and um stayed here for about five or six months and yeah just found it fascinating like the the hiking is amazing the mountains the rivers they've got an incredible um techno scene here as well and it's quite political um the clubs here are safe spaces for um lgbtq um people in a society that's generally quite conservative although rapidly changing and um yeah it's just uh it very much feels for me the analogy is if you have a snow globe and you were to shake it um a, a lot of places i feel when, when everything settles you can see what's going on and and georgia to me is a total like i mean it's like a snowstorm and it's yeah, it's really, really fascinating. So this is all to say that I'm here to hopefully write my next book. <laughs> <laughs> so the plan is, is to repeat repeat the same trick as last time yeah. with a bit of, bit yeah. of help from Georgia. Yeah, that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> Was um, Did you always want to be a writer? Was that always the plan, mate? Um, I think ever since I was about 20, yeah, I kind of got pretty obsessed with, um, yeah, with being a writer. I, uh, yeah, I was always sort of writing like short stories and poems and that sort of thing. And um, and then after, yeah, high school, I sort of, I, I did like a year of Spanish. I did a year of journalism. I did a year of um, business uh, and dropped out of all of them. And then eventually I applied to um, do creative writing down in Melbourne um, and I got in. And yeah, I guess I came became kind of what you would call a bit obsessed with it. I kind of, um, I was writing like a thousand words a day, every day for three years. Um, I told myself that if I didn't uh, have a book done by the time university was finished, then I'm, I had failed, which is a fairly extreme uh, in hindsight thing to think, but at the time seemed totally normal and moreover, like the mindset that I required in order to be uh, successful. So yeah, I did that and I uh, ended up, yeah, getting that that book done. Um, but yeah, shortly after that first book got published was when my problems sort of started with the migraines and, and things went fairly south from there for a while. So yeah, a lot of learning. 
Yeah, yeah, very much so. It's like kind of with any like creative pursuit. It's funny, isn't it? Our humans that we're like these innative creative people, you know, that's kind of what we what we're here to do. And then we we take one aspect of that creativity and just fucking ride it till the wheels come off, you know, like it, it's like the opposite of what creativity is, is supposed to be. But it's like it's really common, isn't it? I think we all yeah. there's elements of that in in all of us. Yeah. yeah. And then so you like, yeah, you put all that work in and the first book comes out and that should really be like a a relief right like everything's paid off but it sounds like that was kind of maybe maybe not the catalyst but certainly the start of uh, of what was to come over the next few years mate <laughs> yeah it's funny you uh, mentioned that i guess because um you know there's that um uh, elizabeth gilbert you know eat pray love um and and she talks about you know how we we should dance with creativity we should play with it we should you know invite it into our homes and it seems like the tendency of a lot of people, generally men, is to is to fight it and to wrestle it into submission and to, you know, as she says, the ultimate version would be to die from it as a martyr, you know, in some sort of way, which, yeah, seems absolutely insane. Um, I read a, I'll circle back to um, what mm. we're talking about, but um, I don't know if you know Bud Smith. He's a writer from America. He's, he's got a book called out, um, called Teenager that came out quite recently. It's really, really good. But um, he did an interview with the Creative Independent um, and he was talking about this exact same thing and just giving tips on creativity around, you know, um, play with it, make sure it's always play, right? You know, small goals, achievable things, 300 words a day, less, put it, up, put it on a note card, like doesn't have to be official, you can always fix things later. He said his why he gave his wife the password to the internet on his phone i think so he doesn't have, yeah he's got internet on the parental control for 15 minutes a day wow and, and i think there's something probably to that you know like you need to have that time where you're where you're bored where you can think where 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 you, a space where ideas can come and uh yeah i think i mean this isn't like a hot take it's like quite obvious but like you know quite obvious like you know when you when you when you don't give yourself that and you're just mindlessly scrolling or talking it's it's like you know when you go for a run which which i adore or you know if you're in the shower sometimes and you're standing there like that's when the kind of things happen because you've let your mind like untangle or something like that Anyway, we got super off topic there. No, no, that's cool. I'm here for it, mate. I'm here for it. Whenever I talk about creativity, I always think of my kids, right? So my kids are like uh, six and five. So they just like, they just create, they just make stuff. You know, my daughter will just sit and she'll just churn out painting after painting after painting. And I think like, I suppose the difference when we're adults is if you're living a creative life, but you want to get paid for it. Mm. then someone has to deem whatever you've created as good to give you money. Mm-hmm. Whereas like good is, you know, it is in the eye of the beholder. My daughter loves her drawings. Do you know yeah. what I mean? She thinks they're all good. And some of them are just like a, a slash on the page. But um, I suppose that changes it when you kind of think I want to make this my life. So I need some money. Um, and then, yeah. you know, that, that kind of adds a different sort of pressure to being creative. That kind of changes the rules a little bit, I think. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, as well, when you, when you, like for example put an album out or put a book out or something and you know and like of course you know you know that you don't look at reviews like you just know that but you do you do because for whatever reason you know I mean hopefully you made this beautiful thing that you put your entire life energy into and you spent you know three to six to twelve months with it and and you more or less birthed and raised a child to be 18 to then put on its 
backpack and head out into the world and you love that kid you love that thing but yeah you kind of want to know like did I <laughs> did I raise it right <laughs> or like or something and and then yeah you know something that I mean I, I've got a you know this is my second book I've got a little bit of practice now so I'm sort of yeah getting a lot better at uh separating myself from the work separating ego from the work viewing the work as something separate to me and so not being affected at the same time though it's like it's sort of what you were saying it's like you know these things come out that are innately innately creative and they're beautiful but you need to make money and then and then you know if you're lucky everyone's gonna love it and buy it but if you're not one person who might not like you or like your work or like your taste or like your influence or whatever is going to say like, this is a piece of shit. And, and beyond the egoic practice of that, the reality is it's like, that's, that's how you make a living. Right. So it's like, yeah, I think it can be quite intense when you, yeah, when you have like these newspapers or whoever they are and it's, and it's, yeah, one person, doing whatever they think. And I could just be, I remember being a young writer and like reviewing a book and it wasn't necessarily a bad book, but I was like 18 and I thought I was like, you know, I felt important or something. And I gave it like a three out of five. And looking back, I was like, that was a, that was a great book. Like, I don't know why I felt the need to try and like validate myself or something. I don't know. Again, yeah. we've got a topic, but uh, it's a, it's a, as as yeah one of my mentors says like you have to have thick skin in this game and uh you basically just have to um hold your nerve you know through thick and thin uh the people that are going to be writing when they're 80 years old are the people who are the real writers and you know what if you write enough books then like people are eventually going to read them so yeah that's true and I suppose you know in anything you kind of anyone who's got like a long career there's this stuff in there that's questionable and, you know, like you look at even like, you know, Bob Dylan, you know, there's mm. some albums in his catalogue that then they're, they're not the best, you know, but, mm-hmm. you know, I'm sure Bob's happy with him and he don't seem to care what we think of him. So maybe mm-hmm. that's, uh, that's the that's the way to go. Right. It's just keep keep yeah. doing your thing. Keep doing and, your and thing. One thing I'd add to that, I, I listened to an interview with, you know, Fortet. Uh, um, no, yeah, I don't know. Musician anyway, like prolific electronic mu- uh, musician, just like absolutely incredible music and and an amazing artist in his own right and someone asked him about creativity not so long ago how how he was so prolific and how he battled what you might call perfectionism and and he said something to the effect of he's like oh no like each each one of my albums is not what i would call like i'm never trying to create an album i'm merely just trying to document my interests at the time so i could never be wrong because each each step is just a little catalog of yeah what i was into and what i wanted to remember as a record for for the future or something and i think that's a really really beautiful way to um yeah to go about projects instead of trying to create this perfect thing that is you're never gonna be able to hit if you're just again and i think that returns to an idea of play right because you you're returning to what excites you and what interests you and makes you curious and childlike and uh and yeah for lack of a better word maybe beautiful it's a it's a beautiful way to go about things and um yeah i I really like that yeah very much so and you know some of the things we've just been talking about you know about like attaching ourselves to this essentially like product um Mm -hmm. Yeah, going back to your first book, mate, is that kind of where you had to learn to separate yourself from, um, you know, from the things that you're that you're making and putting out there? 
Yeah, well, you know, I, I was sort of forced because, um, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, first book came out um, and so I wrote it when I was 25, came out when I was 20, just 27 or just before I was 27. And um, I remember when I was flying to do the launch in Melbourne, um, I've, I've had these migraines before, you know, uh, in university that lasted from a couple hours, one lasted a bit over a day but they generally kind of resolve and I remember sitting in the airport um, in Sydney flying to Melbourne um, working on a short story and then for whatever reason whatever it was um, yeah like this this ferocious uh, pain started like throbbing in the back of my head and around my temples and and around like the band like it just felt like I was being simultaneously hit in the head by a sledgehammer and that my like veins on the side of my head were going to pop out. And I remember like just going to the bathroom and just splashing water on my face. And, and then I, you know, slept on the plane, got to the launch in Melbourne and uh, yeah, had to take a bunch of painkillers and I drank a lot and uh, it wasn't a healthy way to do it, but it, you know, it was cause it was always triggered by reading and right and looking at things up close. I think in hindsight, you know, that was, as I write in the book, that was definitely my body talking to me and trying to be like, Oliver, like you dumb fucking fuck, like, listen, uh, something is happening and we need to talk about it. Um, uh, and I didn't. And, and then, yeah, after that, maybe like a month later, I was working on a grant to do what would be another book and then that was when the beginning of the 10 month migraine started and a similar thing happened but more intense and I sort of yeah like fell off my chair and then crawled outside and just vomited in the grass and and that one yeah didn't go away for 10 months which was it's funny you know like you 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 recount these things now and and it almost sounds like unbelievable like it, it almost sounds like even when I speak it out loud, I'm listening to myself say this and, and, and it's like, it sounds insane, but it, like every now and then I, I, I'll still get these, yeah, kind of chronic pain or, or migraine things, but, and it's, and it's almost interesting because it's like a little reminder of what was and, and then what I've overcome and how much I have grown and listened to my body and, and using various tools that I'm sure we'll talk about later. Um, yeah, I, I, I would never want to have, and I would never wish on anyone uh, that kind of pain, but it, it, when I look back on it, I am a little bit grateful because it has helped me to grow as a person, I think. And, uh, you know, I think that's how you do have to look at most things in your life that are tough, like they are, they are, they are opportunities for growth, which sounds like a cliched soundbite, but, but I truly believe it, you know. Yeah, I'm with you there. I think most cliches are cliches for a reason, right? You know, because they are actually uh, they are actually true. And it's the same. There's the hot with with any particularly something that's chronic, particularly something that's long term. There is an element of to it, like acceptance almost is part yeah. of the healing process or or, mm. or getting out the other side. And, mm. you know, like with my own um, like my own mental health, I kind of like I tried to wrestle it all the time. That's I was just in a battle with it. You know, I thought I could win by being aggressive, by like mm -hmm. out macho in everything. And um, mm -hmm. and it didn't and it didn't work. And there is a certain level of of acceptance. And it sounds like, you know, you kind of accepting that, that this thing has, has happened, um, mm -hmm. you know, kind of helped you find peace with it. Because, yeah, mm -hmm. like 10 months, dude, that's such a 
such a long time to to you know to be carrying all this um you know carrying that pain around with you yeah it was harrowing and and but i think that's why you know yeah for for the people who are listening you know essentially what happened was had this 10 month migraine i almost jumped in front of a train really glad that i didn't went home back to brisbane to um, recuperate with my family kind of saw this guy who wasn't a real doctor but i called him the healer uh, as I did in the book and, and he manipulated all the nerves in my neck. And while that was very much a band-aid solution and wasn't treating what, what was actually causing it, it did allow me to not be in pain for the first time in 10 months. This is just a rapid fire version of the book. Uh, so then I uh, went back to Sydney and, um, and I needed a job. So I took two painkillers and I Googled no experience full-time Sydney. Uh, and um, this job on the trains came up as a train guard and, uh, the trains were perfect for me because yeah, like I mentioned before, I needed a job that didn't have screens or computers or phones. And, and in this increasingly, you know, technological crazy world out there, like there's not a lot of that, but this, this was one of those, you know, beautiful old, you know, in many ways romantic, but I, I never chose it because of its, you know, you know, even, even storytelling potential. I think I joked about to one person, I was like, oh, well, the next book will write itself, mate. But at the time it was really, it was a, a an ends to a means. I needed a job and I needed a job without, um, yeah, screen. So like 40,000 people applied. I think at my intake, there were like 20 people. I still view it as a sort of miracle that I was even given the opportunity to do this job, uh, yeah, not only for the reasons mentioned, but also because the money was, I'd never earned anything quite. It was a government job in Australia. You know, it pays really, really well. Um, and I, yeah, I'd, I've been living week to week since I was like 20 or something. So, and the other thing is it forced sobriety as well. So it, um, you know, they alcohol and drug tested you. And, and I think at that stage in my life, I didn't even know that, not that I would say that it was a problem, but, you know, it was definitely getting to a point where, the norm was to be partaking in, you know, certain things. And uh, yeah, that, that abrupt stop on that level mixed with an injection of cash and then time just spent on the trains, just going around and around and around, you know, after a certain time, it, it was exactly what I needed to uh, look at my own life. Um, it bought the time and gave me the time and the energy to look at my own life. And um, yeah, so as I was learning to trust my body again, I, I still I still couldn't really look at screens all that much, but I could, you know, for 10, sometimes 15 minutes at a time, or at the beginning, two minutes, I could write by hand. So I, I bought this little, um, this little notebook that I titled uh, The Migraine Handbook. And and in between stops, in between, you know, Redfern to Central or wherever I was, I'd, I'd have after I did my announcements or open and close my doors, did my announcements, I'd have two minutes. And so I'd sit down and I'd just, I'd call them sketches. And I'd, I'd sketch these memories from the migraine that I was trying to piece together. And much like, you know, Bud Smith we were talking about or, um, uh, yeah, the, um, the, the playing aspect, I, I was really trying to be very anti-perfectionistic with it. And I was, nothing was in order. It, it was like a free form writing thing. Whatever memory came out, I do. And it was a tiny little notebook. And so each, each thing would be, you know, about 
six to seven lines, something like that. Um, and it's interesting because those, a lot of those made it into the book. And so the reason the book is done in these little paragraphs was a direct um, relation to the structure of the train. So <clears throat> that, I'm really interested in that time aspect of you finding the time to and within that time find what you needed to keep going or to do what you wanted to do because that's something that modern life takes from us right and we're on this kind of like uh you know merry-go-round or whatever analogy you want to want to use and everything's just so busy and we don't get that time to breathe to kind of think Mm. about you know what we really want and who we really are and i think in the mental health conversation you know there's such a big disconnect um, and that that plays a massive part on in people's well-being, and I, you know yeah. I don't think we always kind of look at that enough when we're talking about mental health. But having that time just to kind of um, yeah, just just take a minute, right, and just breathe. Yeah. It sounds like yeah. it kind of arrived just when you needed it. Yeah, and and I think of course that, but you know I, I think as well it can't be underestimated how important. Um, writing my story was and taking ownership of my story and reclaiming my story I kind of felt like when I was writing Train Lord that you know there was there was me Oliver in real life and then there was the character Oliver in the book and and he was like pretty much me like pretty much right but obviously by proxy of him being a character in a book and not me, it's never going to hundred percent be me. And I, and I felt like when I was writing this book that as I was sketching these memories and slowly holding that Oliver's hand and walking him back through this quite harrowing uh, and painful and traumatic experience of this 10 month migraine, it was, it was like by reliving that with him, knowing that I'd made it out, to the other side it almost felt like and this might sound a little bit woo woo but it felt like into that other sort of I would call it storytelling world I was like who, who's to say that this didn't happen in real life and who's to say that when I was going through the migraine there wasn't a version of me in the future that was holding my hand through this and if I can keep writing this and in bringing Oliver through then, you know, potentially I can save this character's life much like maybe someone saved mine. And so writing became an act almost of um, like, what's the word? It felt integral to keep writing this book because if I didn't save that Oliver, if I couldn't bring that Oliver through that storytelling world to the other side, it felt like something inside me, like my spirit would die and, and I would never be able to move on from it. And um, yeah, there's one of my friends who read the book recently, yes, yeah, said it felt like you were writing for your life. And, and, and it, really, it really kind of felt like that sometimes. And I didn't really have a plan beyond uh, what would happen next. You know, like I, um, I saved up 25 grand on the railways, which was like, you know, double the amount I'd ever had in my entire life. And the smartest thing would have been to, you know, like put that towards a house deposit or, you know, squirrel it away for your superannuation or something. But I decided to quit my job on the railway, which everyone told me I was a complete fool for doing because, you know, it's known as like a golden handcuffs job. You, you, you're, you become a lifer, you know, you've got your all your support, like you just got to keep going around and around. And 
Um, but, but for me, I, while I was able to write some of it there, um, maybe like, you know, I think I wrote, yeah, maybe like 10,000 words there. I still felt too close to the pain and too close to the story and I needed perspective. So I took that 25 grand and I said, like, I'm going to move to Europe and I'm going to write this book and I'm going to spend every last cent of it trying to do it. Um, and so, yeah, that's how I ended up going to, to Spain. Uh, but I mucked up my visa. So I only could stay there for three months and then... <laughs> And then I wanted to stay in the EU. So I went to, oh, not in Europe, but not in the EU because I couldn't stay. So I went to Albania and I ended up um, renting a tent on a beach in a little rainforest near Saranda and lived there for two weeks. And would, you know, it sounds funny and it was funny, but it was also, uh, you know, in terms of mental health, I think routine's really important. And, and I developed this disgustingly beautiful routine where every morning I'd wake up and I'd go for a run and then I'd swim in the ocean and then I didn't have any phone reception. So, and then I'd come back and I'd write for an hour or two um, just in my tent until the heat became unbearable. And then I'd move out to the little tree stump and then, and then I'd have my breakfast, um, you know, see who else was around the campground and I'd go for an Arvo swim. Everything was revolved around, um, I guess what I tried to do in the book around create tension and release, create tension and release. It's something that um, um, uh, Hannah Gatsby, I don't know if you know Hannah Gatsby, the um, famous Australian um, comedian now, but uh, yeah, she's, she talks about, you know, a joke is all about two things about creating tension and releasing it. And, um, and I think stories uh, are, are quite similar and, um, you know, to circle back to, you know, what it means to be on this treadmill and what it means to, you know, even be online all the time. It's like you were just constantly creating tension, creating tension, creating tension, and, and there's never really a release. And, and yeah, so something inside me said it was important to, to return to a quite basic um, existence. Anyway, yeah. that's all to say that I ended no. up in Georgia after that <laughs> yeah I love that way of looking at it because it is some modern life I, I think of it as um like it's like death by a thousand paper cuts right and we and we don't know that all this tension because it's so small and it's completely normalized and everyone's at it we don't realize that there is no no release to it and I think that's a really beautiful way to um beautiful way to put it but if we um rewind a, a little bit mate the mm. the pain um as you described it before was that day-to-day -day for 10 months was that intensity like a wave riding through that 10 months of of your life yeah it was it was constant it, it didn't go away it would sort of like you know probably if I if I again didn't look at a laptop or if I didn't look at a screen or a phone or a book and if I went for a run running always helped for some reason and it would buy me you know like a half an hour or something and so the pain would maybe dip to like a two but then it would always return to a five, six, seven. And then if I looked at anything within about 10 seconds, it would be back up to an eight, nine, 10. And I think, and a lot of people, I think who have had um, chronic pain like this, whether that's a uh, fibromyalgia or migraines or, you know, back pain or neck pain or um, headaches or whatever, it's the fear. It's, it's the inability to trust your body to do the things that seem normal and that a normal body should be able to do and yeah it's it's the growing it's it's like being locked in a in a 
it's like being a rat in an experiment and told you have water here and water here and this one will shock you and this one won't but then you're seeing other people drink from both and it seems fine and then sometimes you can even drink from both but then every now and then for for no reason that you can understand you get shocked and it's and it and it yeah it can make you um it made me feel yeah in I, I felt like I was losing my mind um and yeah you know I think a lot of other people can relate I basically wrote this book because I felt like when I went through this experience, you know, I'd never had anything like this before in my entire life. I, I'd never even, I'd heard of chronic pain or something, but it, I, I'd never been able to empathize with it so much because I'd never experienced it or, or knew what really that was. And um, yeah, I wrote this book because I certainly do know now. And, and, I, and, I, and I wanted to add another story to all that other literature that says like you can heal and you can make it out it was really important for me when I was on my healing journey and I can talk about this now if you want or later, but, you know, yeah, at a certain point um, I went on a, I'd seen all the doctors, I'd had all the MRIs, I'd, 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 I'd been to, you know, a whole bunch of other sort of alternative medicine, nothing could help. And, and this was, yeah, sort of getting to the, to the point where I was, this is actually, the, so I went through that initial 10 months. And then when I was on the trains, uh, a certain other yeah, life event happened that's in the book and, and, and the pain came back and, and I was sort of getting to my wits end again. And I, and I, and I thought, I'm just going to be trapped here again. Like, I, I really don't know what to do. And I went for a run and uh, ended up in, uh, I think in Quiggy or Clavelli. And, and then I just, I sat down at a bus stop and I just prayed for a sign. I just looked at the sky and I just prayed and I opened my eyes and there was a sign. <laughs> it's like, do you have back pain, neck pain, scratch pain? I was like, yes, I do. Yeah. And, um, and anyway, what happened was, yeah, I ended up going to see um, another alternative medicine person who lived in a mansion in Bronte and it definitely looked like a scam and I showed up to his house and I was like this is a scam and I told him my whole story as I told so many people and he said he couldn't help me and I almost yeah I kind of just broke down again and but then he said I do know someone who can and um and I was like oh yeah okay and then he's like but but you know you need to read a book and I was like oh well here, mate, I can't read. That's what I'm telling you. I can't do that. And like, is it your book? Like, you know, how much do I have to pay you? Like, you know, where does this scam end? I was so sick of people taking my money for my pain. You know, I was so sick of uh, just paying people to, to, it felt like people were benefiting. That's the narrative that was going on in my head. And I, and I was, I was so off it. And, um, and anyway, but he gave, yeah, eventually I read this book, uh, Healing Back Pain by Dr. John Sarno, which I think in the, yeah, in the sort of chronic pain community, a lot of people uh, would be uh, aware of him or, or should be aware of him because, yeah, he, that, that guy totally saved my life. You know, um, I was saying, you know, you need to, I, I needed to read a lot of stories to understand what he was talking about. Um, but basically he says that, yeah, if you, so he was a doctor in the 90s uh, who worked at NYU as a, as a leading back rehabilitation um, specialist surgeon. And, and he would perform surgery on all these people, all these people, but no one would get better. So he'd, he'd, he'd do the bulging discs and the slip discs. And, you know, everyone's like, oh, you know, Sana, like I'm not getting better. So he, at one point he started, um, 
he, he did this study and he proved that these bulging discs and these slip discs had nothing to do with the pain. And he goes, well, that's a bit curious. So then he started interviewing people about their childhoods and their pressures and their stresses and, and their marriages and whatever have you. And he found that when you um, unconsciously repress um, either um, guilt or rage, so, and it's an unconscious uh, repression. So it often, often happens to people pleasers and perfectionists. So when you don't put your own needs first, when you, when you're, when you're too polite, when you, when you, yeah. And it's a, it's an, it's generally an unconscious thing. Um, then your body reacts and it generally tries to talk to you. And this is what I was saying before, but that, that pain is often its mechanism to talk to you. And so Sano says when you sit in those uncomfortable emotions and when you perhaps do some free writing around it or, or you, or you uh, um, see a psychotherapist, a somatic psychotherapist, or generally it's not a lot of people just reading his book and understanding this connection and listening to your body, the, the pain will go away. Um, and in the end, I read his book and, and after years by that stage of yeah, intense and ongoing chronic pain, the pain went away immediately but then it returned the next day double fold but the book said it might and I spent the next three to four months just reading that book every day every day every day doing um inner child writing exercises doing um free writing rage exercises doing uh going to a somatic psychotherapist uh doing yeah I, I guess you know as as is invoked to say the work doing a lot of work but ultimately repairing my relationship with myself and and especially ultimately learning how to love myself, which I think was at the, was at the core of that and to listen to myself. And um, yeah, that guy saved my life. Uh, you know, for, for anyone listening who, who might have any of these other symptoms, I'd very much recommend you to check him out, but also the um, like Howard Schubiner, who's, who's taken over uh, a lot of his work and the, um, what was the podcast called? It's to do with curable and the how to maybe how to treat your pain podcast. There's a lot of literature out there. Um, but yeah. Yeah. That's what I have to say. Yeah. Oh mate, yeah, that's incredible, really. I think like with with chronic pain, it's there's so much going on around there. And like I so I work in the rehab space. Mm -hmm. So I quite often work with people who have got like long-term injuries or, mm -hmm. or chronic pain. It tends to be more backs, is more, mm -hmm. more my line of work. And what the overall thing that comes um, from the people I work with that comes across to me is that the pain is almost people would be willing to even kind of put up with the pain and live with it if it mm. didn't limit other aspects of their mm. life. And it's more mm. the things that are stripped from them is mm. worse than the pain itself to some extent. Mm. And, mm. you know, I was thinking about from your perspective, not being like able to look at screens and write, essentially mm. you become a writer who can't write anymore. And then, then, then we start getting into like the identity of it and, mm. you know, who, who am I if I don't write and all mm. that sort of stuff. And there's so many um, complexities around chronic pain. Mm. that have got they, of course they've got everything to do with the pain but they've got nothing to do with the pain as well right i'm not yeah, sure well, i articulated that well but no no you did it perfect it's spot on you you lose your identity i have a line in the book that goes you know in literature and life i began to disappear and it was 100 percent true you know if if yeah you can't do the the things that you love and that you want to do then yeah suddenly you have loss of community and 
and loss of identity and and then suddenly the chronic pain that you have uh, bleeds over into you know anxiety and depression um isolation loneliness you know all of these things that are that are extremely damaging to the human condition and and again that this is why i wanted to write this book was just to tell other people that they are not alone like i remember being you know in that room more or less for those 10 months and being unable for the most part to function in in normal society and just the that isolation and that that just constant thought or the sitting in that constant space where <clears throat> it felt like no one would ever understand you or no one would ever be able to you know <clears throat> yeah just no one would be able to uh I'm at a loss for words to how even to, to describe it and I guess that's kind of why I wrote the book too because you know I I wanted I didn't want to hurt people with this book and I say that in it but I, I did want to write a fairly honest account of what this thing is and what it is for a lot of people and but while it <clears throat> is a book about pain it's primarily for me like a book about healing and and so it's 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 trying to look at things through a through a lens of love as well but yeah I think you know if 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 the chronic pain was at the middle of it the migraine experience was at the middle of it I tried to uh sort of orbit this thing with different planets that you know what I was thinking in my head was yeah the 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 migraine was the sun and the planets around it would be the chapters and each of the planets would be wrapped in a in 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 sort of glass but the glass would be broken so so you would have all these sort of different and distorted but multifaceted reflections going back towards this thing that could never be explained but if you could just try from these different angles you might come up with something that more or less represents and an overall truth and if people could just understand that then you know like one in four people are affected by chronic pain these days and and increasingly so with you know covid and the way that uh the droughts and the floods and climate change and 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 the stresses out there i think the more empathy i mean for sure we need to do we need to do something about all that you know someone's got to do something about this climate what's going on but more personally uh yeah we we need to understand that people are going to react in certain ways and and some people can internalize it or will internalize it and some people won't but yeah, just to to try and foster empathy around what chronic pain might be. Um, I was talking to someone not so long ago about, you know, anxiety and depression. And, you know, there are so many charities out there now, and I think, which is beautiful. And, and there's so much dialogue around um, these things. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's suddenly not... Uh, it, not a problem or it's okay these days to say I have depression or I have anxiety and people can understand that that's that there's a tangibility to that in, in some ways I still feel like with chronic pain it's it's like one more step removed kind of it's a bit more abstract and and I think just trying to create yeah like a visibility around that um and an understanding around that basically yeah to to make people not feel alone was um was something that is and was very important to me. Yeah, yeah it's the, it's that absence of of any sort of hope. That's when things get dark, and yeah. you know, there's only so many times, like you say, you can invest your time and your money 
into yeah. trying to get help and have someone say, um, you know, I'm sorry, I can't help you. Yeah. And it, it like in it's particularly like I suppose in the in the Western world, and you know, our first thought with any sort of pain is to go straight to straight to your doctor and GP, yeah. and that that is the right move, right? That's where we've got to start. But um, I think you know, doctors can only they can only offer things that are available to them. And so quite often your first point of call is your doctor. And then if they can't find anything on the scan and they can't find anything, any reason for it, then they have to say, well, I don't know. And it's those, Mm. I don't knows Mm. that absence of hope. That's, Mm. that's what drives the, um, you know, the darkness and the, and the collapse of mental health and the depression and everything comes with it. And like you say, the, this, there is hope in other people's stories. They don't have to have experienced a migraine they might have a different type of pain yeah underneath something i seem to say on this podcast every other week right um and i'm still trying to find the words to make it my my famous quote but um (laughs) but we all break in different ways but it's the same stuff that comes out so underneath all these different things underneath that the emotions is that's the human bit isn't it it's the emotions and the feelings and and, like yeah and you kind of alluded to it before some people that's going to show up in, in pain and other, pa- other places in, in, um, yeah, in other people in different ways, but yeah, there's 100%. a lot going 100%. on underneath. Yeah. 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 And even, you know, for anyone out there that's listening, if you want to have like a brilliant day on the internet, just go to thank you, And there are thousands upon thousands of, uh, just anonymous entries of people who have read his book and, uh, you know, whether they've had like, you know, uh, chronic knee pain for 20 years or chronic back pain for 15 years or, you know, whatever have you. And people have read his work and then either, you know, sort of, oh, it's the tell me about your pain podcast. That's, that's the one I'm trying to think of, um, which is, yeah, it's all, it's all to do with sort of neuroscience these days. And they've taken what Sano talked about, but they're like, yeah, the top sort of uh, neural scientists in the world. And they look at neural pathways and pain and how pain can be learned, but pain can also be unlearned. And, and what often happens with chronic pain is, yeah, like you, it's like you've sort of, uh, uh, what do you call it? A switch? Yeah, a switch has been flicked and it's and it's remained on. And, and so those neural pathways are just getting like, over and over and over and over run until that that's the normal sort of thing and and yeah so listening to that podcast especially was instrumental in me learning how to turn those neural pathways off and and how to regulate your body again and, and instead of going into alarm mode and oh my god my life's going to end and i'm going to be alone and blah 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 and just taking a breath and settling and looking at what might be happening and talking to yourself and sitting again in those uncomfortable spaces I sometimes think even these days, I notice I clench my stomach. Sometimes, often I feel like that's where I hold tension. And, and even when I'm walking these days, I just tell myself, all right, Oliver, we're just going to let everything go. And, and I, I can almost feel this kind of like, it's funny, like if you're, if you're lying in bed, if you're doing that now, just like lie there and just say, I'm going to sit wherever you're, wherever you might hold tension. I, I do it in my stomach. So, and, I, and I kind of go into my stomach and I pretend that I'm just going to like relax everything and then feel into whatever's there. And oftentimes I get this like rush throughout my body. Like, like I can feel kind of things. It's kind of like what, do you know, Michael Singer, he wrote that book, the untethered soul. Okay. It's like a, it's, it's unbelievable. You got to read this book, but it's basically, he, he talks a lot about, um, he's American and he, he kind of talks like this. And he's like, the only thing you've got to do, the only thing you got to do is remain open do not close, remain open. And it's like, it's kind of true. Like 
we trap and hold and and cling on to things uh and 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 those create scars in in our in our body and and you know much like just uh going down the road and looking at the trees and and they come in and they come out and they don't leave anything that's kind of what we have to do with with the larger things too we just have to let them pass through us like the amount of energy it takes to hold whatever it is that is too terrifying to look at coming back to what dr sano would say those difficult emotions that you know for whatever reason terrify you to admit um Sometimes we just have to open to those, experience them and let them move on. And I think that was a, that was a huge learning for me as well. Yeah, definitely. There's a process, isn't there, with, with feeling stuff that we've kind of got quite, <laughs> quite wrong. We, you know, forget how to feel things and how to express things and how to, yeah, like you say, let, let things go. I was quite interested to ask, mate, when you, um, you were talking about Dr. Sano's work and how some of these pain things can be quite common for um, like people pleasers and perfectionists and stuff like yeah. that. And like kind of looking back on reflection, would you have described yourself in that vein? Did that part of it make yeah. sense to you? Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. Like for sure. I was, yeah. I mean, I, I was sort of, uh, I don't know if this leads into it, but yeah, like Ray, I grew up in America from like nine to 14 or something. And, I remember, yeah, I just like kind of didn't really fit in that much there. Or I just, I didn't understand the culture and, and everyone went through puberty when they were like 10 years old. And like, I didn't go through puberty till I was like 22 or something. And like, uh, I just, I was just this skinny kind of like weedy kid amongst like people with beards and, you know, people, you know, being really masculine. And I'd never, uh, I'd never at that stage in my life sort of kind of felt like that. And so I think, to try and uh fit in i just yeah I, I totally became a people pleaser i just wanted people to like me you know and it sounds yeah you know even even when i say it now I like shudder a little bit because i'm just kind of like i don't need anyone to like me like i like me that's enough i don't really care any anymore and but at, at that stage in my life i desperately was trying to find that um and then i think with writing you know, my dad would laugh because, you know, like my room would always be a mess. And I was like, you know, could never like pack the dishwasher. This comes down to perfectionism, but in writing in that space, you know, every, I, I actively even now have to work at not being perfectionist. I think with that, because for sure, you know, like every, every sentence has to like there's a musical tone to whatever it is that I'm trying to write. And if the beats off, the whole thing's off. It's like, you're, you're inventing a score of some sort. And, um, and yeah, well, that's still important to me, obviously. Yeah. The best things happen when you let go. Um, but yeah, I, to answer your question. Yeah. Like no longer would I say I'm a people pleaser. I feel like pretty good in, in who I am. The perfectionist stuff still working at but i've been enjoying that process and enjoying writing recently so yeah it's 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 been it's an it's an ongoing thing it's always going to be ongoing um and i think you know it's like everything you it's like chronic pain you, you take two steps forward and then there'll be like half a step back but i think you know it kind of like meditation where the point is to return to the mantra or to return to the breath uh you know it's okay to get lost and in fact that's that's a good thing because or even like in a story like you, you think you're going to end up here and you started here but 
each time you make a mistake, you go slightly to the left and then you end up in this wildly interesting place that you never even knew how you would have got there. So failure is good is what I'm saying. We should fail more. Fail more. You're yeah. Really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I think that kind of stood out to me. I describe myself as a, a people pleaser in reform. And uh, like you say, you have to kind of, you have to like, yeah, you have to work on it and keep, um, <laughs> you know, keep, keep kind of, yeah, coming back to it and, and staying on it. And yeah, you kind of mentioned it there as well, but something that was really um, interested, I was really interested to ask you about is after, after kind of living through that period and then getting to a place where things are okay and you're starting to write against, uh, write again, I was really interested in the, in the kind of the fear aspect, right? Mm -hmm. So something I felt once I kind of, with the stage of my recovery, I got to a point where I was ready to go back in, into the world. And then I stepped out into the world and one, I felt like I changed and nothing around, everything around yeah. me was exactly the same. And I was changed. And I was like, I don't know how I fit back into this, into my old life. If, even yeah. if I do. And then also I was so scared of getting poorly again, yeah. it affected all my decisions. I yeah. turned down work stuff in case it was too much. I'd, yeah. you know, I'd shy away from certain things just in case it triggered anything. And I was wondering yeah. if, if that, if you, that kind of related to you a bit, because it's after going through everything that you went through, the idea of going back into that is mm -hmm. you have to learn to live again. Don't you after something mm -hmm. that's been so, so hard and so intense for so mm -hmm. long yeah no for sure and, and I think you know I mean because because I had sort of multiple waves of you know I had the initial 10-month migraine and then I had a couple of years of sort of ongoing chronic pain with you know flare-ups of migraine and then and then another one on the trains after the life event I was talking about um there was that constant yeah kind of uh can I trust my body again will I just return to this hellish place that I don't want to return um what happens if I fail is basically the question um, and failure has always been like yeah a huge huge thing for me um a, a terrifying thing whether yeah that's sort of yeah like being useless and being a failure I think has probably driven me a lot to try to succeed in, in some way and, and again coming back to like well we can just play with that but to return to the question you know for me it was really important um it had been a couple months basically after i discovered sano done all the um the the psychotherapy uh the writing exercises i felt like i had this imaginary tool belt on and i felt sort of at that stage comfortable enough i guess i felt like i'd made a breakthrough with myself and 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 i knew if i had a relapse then i had certain tools that I could rely on to treat this thing. And so I was no longer just, well, fuck, I've got a migraine. And so I'm just, I'm out. It's like, well, no, like if that happens, we can go for a run. And then we can listen to this podcast that will remind us that we need to just sit in those spaces and not, you know, become super uh, wrapped up and anxious in it. And if that doesn't work, then we can um, do, yeah, like a writing exercise. And if that doesn't work, then there's always a phone call to someone. I felt not alone. I felt like I had community, but community within myself. And, and then I think, you know, yeah, I remember like talking to my dad dad and saying i think i'm gonna um yeah quit the route bloody time and so that was like a really lovely uh you know his belief as well i think was i was always going to do it but i think a lot of you know parents knowing what their son had gone through and then 
finally getting a, a pretty good, cushy, reliable, stable job to then say like, I'm out of that and to return to the lion's den. I think he and my mum both understood that I needed to reclaim that space and to, yeah, I, I also felt like, I think I said it before, but if I couldn't write my story and if I couldn't relive what I'd gone through and set myself free, then I would never be able to move on with my life. And that metaphor of the train being a space to go around and around to understand myself would then turn into a space to go around and around like a sort of limbo that I would never move on from. Um, so, and then, yeah, also like betting on myself was huge, you know, uh, taking 25 grand and, you know, like investing in myself felt um, absolutely integral to what I needed to do. It, it was, it was, a, it was a, yeah, a, a total personal growth uh, story that, um, you know, and then I wrestled with it. I was like, this, is this something that needs to be shared? You know, like, is this, did, I, I, I don't want to inflict pain on other people. I'm not even sure if other people will find it interesting. I'm sure a lot of people will hate it because, you know, also like as a man writing about mental health issues and showing vulnerability and weakness, it's, it's still a fact. And it's a shame that um, those, that those, those are easy spaces to attack. And, you know, uh, and, you know, while I've sort of experienced that as, as well, um, I do think it's extremely important. Yeah. I decided, no, this is important to try and publish if anyone wants to publish it for the reasons we spoke about earlier around, fostering community, uh, adding another story to the literature that says you can heal, uh, showing that, yeah, hope is possible and that you are not alone. And, and I think one of the things that um, we haven't talked about as well is that I, I turned this into a stage show at one point. So, um, yeah, like when I was working on the trains, I started, uh, I started memorizing these stories. Um, and, well, actually, yeah, at a certain point I was, I would invite people up to my, I lived in this little attic, uh, very romantic in uh, Darlington in Sydney. And I'd invite, yeah, my friend like Sam and Taylor up. And at that stage, it was just short little uh, paragraphs of this book. And, and I'd listen to the same song over and over while I wrote. So it was like CK's um, Snow Spectrum. And it made sense to read that work over that music. And so I invited them up and I just read them like a tiny couple paragraphs and, and they really, really loved it. And so then I, and then I'd also started running like a literature night in Sydney and normally I'd just um, like a storytelling night. And so I just get other people to tell stories, but then I started telling some of these stories too, and, and I got a good response. And so um, then I decided that I was going to do Adelaide fringe. And so I memorized like an hour's worth of these stories and told them over music with like a, pro with a projection in the background. So it was kind of like a one man monologue play, I guess. Um, and what was really interesting about that was, you know, and especially at the Sydney Fringe as well, was that I had, you know, sometimes like 40, 50, 60 year old, it was often older people. And I always thought these stories were like, you know, generally for younger people, but I guess they don't have any money. So it was, it was older, older people that came. And, and it would be so interesting because time and time again, there'd be like some 70 year old, 60 year old, 80 year old man sitting in the front, kind of just arms cross just listening to me more or less bare my soul and 
And I'd always feel like he would just think this is the biggest pile of shit. Like that's the, that's the narrative I was telling myself. And time and time again, I'd finish, I'd go off, I'd, I'd be standing outside and, and someone would come up to me and he'd be like, mate, I just, I just wanted to say, um, you know, I, I've had, uh, yeah, like chronic back pain for um, <clears throat> 20 years. And uh, yeah, no, nah, that, that story, that, that, that was the first time I've kind of heard someone else kind of share what, what I've been going through. And I, I just, I really, I just really appreciate, um, you know, trying to help make people understand and like these stories between sort of intergenerational men and masculinity were, were like mind blowing to me as well, because it can be such an uncomfortable thing to talk about, but yeah, I think creating these spaces and, and, you know, yeah, just creating spaces to foster community and connection. And, and like we spoke about when you lose connection, you lose hope. And, and I think, more than anything, stories, storytelling is such a wonderful way to, to, to bring those, those things together. So, yeah, definitely. If you see your, I think I said it before, but if you can see yourself in someone else's story, then that, that gives oh. you hope, doesn't it? That settles, yeah. settles the ship. Yeah. That's incredible, man. And yeah, yeah, that's really cool. I, I suppose it comes down to someone being brave enough to go first. You know, mm. you, you were brave enough to say, cool, this is me. This is my story. This is, you know, I'm going to be authentic. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to put it out there. And that's going to hit with people. That's going to hit with the people who need it to hit with them, right? But if someone goes first and creates that space, then other people will just fall into it, I think. Yeah. And, and then, you know, like, like, like the gentleman who, you know, come up and talk to me, being brave enough to share their own story too, uh, which is, yeah, exactly what you said. And, you know, I think, Oftentimes when we, when we consider writing our story, you know, the question arises like, well, you know, do I want to turn this trauma into why share this trauma? Like why, you know, am I doing it for financial gain? Am I doing it for attention? Am I doing it for, and, and for me, the thing, you know, and, and so those were my own demons talking to me, like, you know, what, knowing that when I did eventually put this book out in the world, you know, you are opening you you are opening a wound, and and it's a wound that you've healed from, and it uh, it's scarred over. But it's still for other people. You're inviting people into your world, um, and and so yeah, kind of like knowing all those things too. Um, but yeah, the thing that I kept coming back to time and time again, and it's something that uh, storytelling uh, is tremendous at, is the alchemic. Um, the out the alchemy if that's even a word of taking something and making it something else so taking trauma and turning it into love taking uh sadness and turning it into hope um taking agency over your own narrative and and being able to rewrite and understand and sit in those spaces and almost give the the old old you or the little boy or girl or whoever in you a hug and say like you can do it you're okay i love you let's 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 move forward together like these are all, yeah, very, were very and are very integral things that I found on this uh, book that I never even wildly expected. You know, I was just trying to make sense of a time that I didn't understand. And, and that writing was, you know, I don't even know if it's very, uh, it's, it's, I don't think it's fashionable these days to say that writing is cathartic like you know but i found the process incredibly cathartic and, and in fact very freeing so 
yeah, just so grateful to, um, yeah, be here. <laughs> yeah, and that's a great that's a, a great mindset to be in, right? Like walking around the world thinking I'm grateful to be here. It's just a beautiful way to way to live. A few episodes back, I spoke to an author called Paul Felrad, and he wrote um, his books all about his. He had this like really his life is just you couldn't couldn't make it up you know and he ended up with um, complex uh, post-traumatic stress disorder and when he was talking about writing the book um he said to me like he he thought that a lot like why should I write it why should I write this book and then he thought because I can and mm-hmm. because I can then I kind of have to you know and it's almost like it's that kind of, that's what I thought of when you were talking there it's like you had to you had to write this story and mm. almost to just get it out and then then to see if another one would would come mm. you know but otherwise there would have been this blockage within you almost you know it just had mm. to yeah had to come out yeah, yeah. big time big yeah. time oh mate i've um i've enjoyed our chat this immensely yeah, this morning i don't want to take up any more of your time but um that was really really sick and thank you so much for for chatting and for um yeah for for getting into it man and it's been great to meet you oh it's such a pleasure and yeah thanks so much for having me on your podcast it's been yeah tremendous a gift so yeah hope you have a beautiful day and looking forward to yeah seeing you or talking to you whenever that may be that would be wonderful yeah yeah cheers man thank you attention customers next stop will be bondi junction this train will terminate at bondi junction all out all change at bondi junction and for those of you going out tonight sending it hard i hope you send it express